0: Welcome to Sounds Like, the podcast brought to you by The Horse's Mouth. We explore how brands connect with their audiences through audio, hosting conversations between industry leaders and creators who have consistently forged authentic relationships with their clients and communities. No fluff, no filter, straight from The Horse's Mouth. I'm Mike Benson and today I'm extremely excited to have a conversation with two extraordinary talented writers and performers, Melanie Hoops and Ed Herbstman. Melanie describes herself as mother, wife, writer, director, filmmaker and spy. Until recently, Ed was the co-owner of a large improv and comedy school and theatre in Manhattan called Magnet Theatre. He now works as a writer and actor in TV, film and audio.
1: Thanks for that great introduction, Mike. It was very accurate.
0: (laughs) So true. Melanie Hoops and Ed Herbstman, thank you for joining us today on Sounds Like. Today we're recording in December 2020. I'm in the UK and you're both just north of New York City in Hastings-on-Hudson. How is life and work for people in the performing and recording arts in the USA
1: right now? It's just a giant ellipse. It's dot, dot, dot. It's unknown. Tough times. It's a tough business to begin with. Yes. It is a tough business to begin with. And uh, with every theater shut down and production being very iffy and spotty, I think people are really worried because... uh, It's, for me personally, I feel like momentum is the most important force in all of it. It's really harder to start something up anew than to just grab onto the next thing once you've got something going. And then there are people like Melanie Hoops who, somehow quickly writes a brilliant play based on everything that's going on in our world and casts the available actors from around the country and gets an arts organization to produce it. And everybody is the top talent in their positions because they're available, because nothing else is taking their time away. And they pour themselves into making something that could not have been made if the anxiety level wasn't, wasn't at, a, at an 11.
0: That's true. And I believe... You were one of the high-level members of cast in that production. Am I right, Ed?
1: I was in it, yes. Yes. I was in it, but it's nepotism. And it was fantastic, (laughs) which is fair. It's fair nepotism. Melanie? Yeah. You're not saying it. You're just nodding. She's like, yeah, nepotism.
2: (laughs) Well, no, I'm just saying, like, we've we've had a casting bed for 25 years now, so you've earned it.
1: Wow, that's got to be edited out. (laughs)
2: <laughs> no, that's the stuff you want more of. Um I I are you done it? Did you have any other thoughts dangling?
1: No, I was actually trying to elegantly toss it over to you.
2: And I fumbled that pass.
1: And you made it look yeah. like I was talking too much. Yeah.
2: Oh, shoot. <laughs> that was not my intention, but I'm they should know that early. So good. Um <laughs> yeah, I had a much different experience of COVID and this terrible period uh, because I'm a writer and I'm always by myself sitting down and writing. And I don't feel as if I really have that much of, um, well, I do have a community. I have some writers groups that are really, really great, but i just write for myself for the most part. I've always written short stories. So when this happened, everyone was talking about how they needed to bring the community together, bring the community together, which I was so excited about, but I didn't really have that same need just because I'm by myself on my tush the day anyway. But yeah, so we, we made this, we built this amazing show together and um, more than a few actors have said the show saved my life. You don't, you have no idea. I'm not going to go into the specifics of it. A lot of my friends who are actors are in true like existential despair of their careers and the things that made them who they were or who they are not being available to them anymore not being able to see themselves as vibrant successful you know people parents whatever because what they love to do more than ever is you know that huge risk and we don't know when it's going to come back so yeah getting together on zoom to go back to the projects getting together on zoom and having rehearsals for a show oddly really felt exactly like being in rehearsals um to me I mean there was less downtime and less kind of sitting on the sidelines as another scene was rehearsing and talking about you know the small talk there was very little small talk but um the actors, it was a series of five different scenes and I had the actors rehearse once with me and then with themselves. And a lot of them didn't know each other and they would come back being like, oh my gosh, we found this and this and this and really energized to just work with another person on a project and then come back and get the director to work on it. So in a way it really was a cool energizing project amazing and
0: it's called six
2: feet apart is that right just six feet six feet just six yes feet. sorry. and it's a double entendre, and not too many people have realized there's also yeah there's someone underground as well that kind of has a presence from beyond but i just gave that away you don't have to find that yourself
0: <laughs> and that was through the river arts yeah um what's the full name of that organization
2: What's the first title? It's just called River Arts and it's just an arts organization just above New York City.
0: I'll put that in the notes uh, for the show. But it's interesting what you're saying. There's two parts of the performer's experience, right? And that is collaborating with peers and then connecting with audiences. And amazingly, you found a way to do both through this. Would you call it a Zoom play or a Zoom
1: film?
2: Well, that's hard. We're trying to figure that out because I'd love to send it out to film festivals. It was
1: absolutely a play. It was a play and then it was recorded.
2: Right. Okay.
1: It becomes a film. It's a new thing. I don't know that there's a real new word for it, but it was absolutely a play. My experience was we did a play and we did it live and people logged in to watch it live. And I think the experience of them watching it live meant something different than to, than to the people who watched it afterwards in the recording. Yes. Because there's a distance there. I mean, that, that's really what's, what's been shut down. Everybody has been shifted to watching stuff on a screen. Not that that shift hadn't begun and wasn't in full swing prior to COVID, but without the ability to watch anything live, whether it be music or, or a comedy show or sports or a play, you're missing out on an experience That is fundamentally, I think, different than a recording of that experience.
2: Although you did say as sorry, you did say as you were leaving for the night of the show, this feels like the same thing. we have been rehearsal because the actually opening night, he was again in a Zoom room with absolutely no energy coming from the audience. It was as if we were doing another rehearsal, but we were live.
1: Right. No, that's absolutely true as well. There's so many like contradictory things that are true at the same time. You have this intense emotional connection with your scene partner and other members of the cast and with uh, who have become your friends. You're accomplishing this thing. You also have this emotional connection as a character to another character, all that actor stuff going on. And then it's over and you're in, I'm in the room I was in. Uh, You're just alone. So that just doesn't happen when you, you know, when it's opening night and you peer out, you find that hole in the flat to see if the audience real quick uh, to peek out or you can feel the audience there, even though the lights are in your face and you can't see them and you hear them breathe, that wasn't there. but I've had so much experience with an audience that I could imagine the audience watching.
0: Sure, and you guys have both had experience in film and TV as well so al- although this was a live performance, you've done audio stuff, you've done radio, you've done um, appeared in films and TV shows so I guess, working in a recorded medium, even if it is apparently live, shouldn't be too off-putting for you. I just wonder if maybe if it was more of a webinar and then you could see that there was an audience there. You could see that 160 people had logged in and maybe you can see the chat going down the sidebar. Maybe that would encourage you to feel like, ah, yes, there is somebody out there. I'm not just doing this on my own in a room. And that might be the way. Can we talk a little bit about some of the other work? That you've been doing in the strangest of years, because I know that you've both been continuing to do stuff, Ed, despite your the, the you know, the tough times that you've described.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. You want to talk about um, your TV work, Ed? My TV, your TV work. work?
1: Well, our whole family was in a commercial. Uh, it hasn't aired yet. Uh, And I'm not really privy to talk about what it was for, but it was like a big company, did a big national commercial. And because of COVID, they didn't want to cast individuals as a family member. They were looking for a full family because we were a pod. Oh, great. I uh, am in commercials and audition all the time. So the casting people kind of knew of me and knew my family. I talk about them all the time. And we did a remote audition and suddenly we were cast as a family. And we went out to New Jersey to shoot a commercial. It was, you know, COVID protocols were pretty onerous and, and restrictive and uncomfortable. But we did it. Uh, we haven't seen it. It hasn't aired yet. But uh, yeah, it happened. It was sort of like a weird fever dream.
0: I uh, can't wait to see that. The cor- the corporate herbstmans all together.
1: I know. It's crazy.
2: <laughs> I formed a dance troupe.
1: You did not.
2: I did a Zoom dance troupe, which was awesome. It was... Um, Like 10 women, middle-aged women, plus my kids, my son, his girlfriend. We had two songs that you could choose from. You had to donate to a local food bank. And we would either dance to September by Earth, Wind & Fire. Beautiful. Or what was the other one? Um, By Santana, Smooth. So one was a little hippie and the other one was much more kind of disco. But you would send it as a birthday, like a happy birthday dance. So we would join. We would kind of Zoom bomb your, your... birthday call.
0: Oh, okay. People had to pay in donations to get your dance show. Right, right. Superb. And Ed, did you mention something about um, writing, co-writing a feature script?
1: Oh, yes. Oh my gosh. It has consumed every atom of my being <laughs> for the last year. I'm very lucky to have a job co-writing a, a feature script with uh, one of my closest friends and It has music in it, and the music's being done by the co-writers of the songs from Frozen and Coco, Kristen Anderson-Lopez and Robert Lopez, and uh, I'm writing it with Tammy Sager, and uh, they're all geniuses, and I just nod and do my best to kind of stay afloat down this crazy rapids, (laughs) down the rapids.
0: I hear you. Can we talk a little bit more about some of the other things that you've been doing and Melanie your mobile film
2: yeah did you ever see it I did you did yeah I mean it's only a minute long right
0: it's very easy to watch.
2: Yeah, very easy to watch. He got through
0: half of it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I stopped at the intermission. I, I, I don't know. I just didn't come back in.
1: We really shouldn't have put an intermission in there. A 40-minute intermission? No, that's even too long for a regular intermission. Um,
2: yeah, it was this just this moment of needing to do something about climate change. And what do we do? Oh, my gosh. I don't know, but let's get the kids involved. Okay, let's make this movie. Oh, my gosh, here's this contest. And we ended up being the representative of the United States in this international film festival. I know it was just the coolest thing. And then we went to Paris for the ceremony. I took my daughter to Paris for six days, I think, or maybe even a full week and then went to the ceremony, which was three hours in French.
1: Magnifique.
2: It was très magnifique.
1: You're <laughs> underselling this a little bit. Oh. It was the United Nations mobile film festival festival submissions from every country around the world about how to tackle climate change. And Melanie's was the only one selected from the United States.
2: Wow. So yeah, I always need a PR person. I'm the, the big underseller, but, um, but yeah, it was 50 countries were there. And I think it was something like 900 entries and, um, it was just great. It was wonderful just to be around all those people that were concerned, even though they flew in. Right? Of course they I mean, do. that's kind of tough. It's challenging. Yeah, we all flew in. But they didn't have bottled water there, which I thought was a nice touch. They had a water fountain. So that was good. I've just um, When you're working on a project like that, you're conscious of every move that you make and as you should be. But it was a really wonderful thing. And also just to show my my daughter that activism can be fun. Do you know, like find the thing that you do that you love and then combine it with a problem in the world and like just get into that sweet spot where you can actually feel good about what you're doing and love what you're doing at the same time. And I think that's the dream, right? So I've been a Girl Scout troop leader for, gosh, now I think seven years. I mean, they're, we're hanging on by a thread right now, the 10th graders. I've got four left, but- we're always just trying to figure out how to get into that sweet spot of desire uh, and change and activism and fun and cool. You got to kind of have yep. the cool in there or else the whole thing. That's a
0: big Venn diagram. Yeah. It's
2: a, it's a really hard thing to do with kids, but I think any, every parent's just trying to turn their kids on and then figure out how their kids can be part of the solution, which has always been really important to me.
0: This whole idea of community, I I know it's a it's a plays a big part in both your lives. Ed, can we talk a little bit about your incredible contribution to your local community?
1: Oh, the yeah, sure. Go ahead.
2: (laughs) You're going to know more about it. Tell
0: our listeners.
1: Uh, No, I became a volunteer firefighter in my town uh, a few years ago. And, uh, you know, I'm still amazed they let me do it. They train me in, I'm a New York State certified interior firefighter. I went through the training. Uh, it was rigorous. And now I respond to fire calls in our town. It's a completely volunteer department. So if uh, there is a, a emergency that requires emergency services, I might be driving the fire engine or in the back or carrying a hose line or uh, rescuing someone from a burning building possibly that hasn't happened yet, but it is something I'm trained to do. Um, and it's a it's an incredible, you know, it's really like, <laughs> I was joking about this the other day, the the bumper sticker, uh, the paw print that says who rescued H- who rescued who? Did I say that right? Who rescued Hugh? Who rescued <laughs> Hugh? My friend, Hugh. <laughs> who rescued who? Who okay, rescued who? So this is like for puppy rescue. It's yeah, uh, I have been able to connect with and meet people who I otherwise would have just sort of passed in the street or at the gas station and not known. Um, And now we've become friends. We are colleagues. We're like teammates. And we depend on each other for our lives in certain circumstances. I'm not attempting to oversell it. We don't have a lot of fires in town, maybe two a year. But there are quite a few terrible car accidents. And you do have to cut people out of cars. And There are emergencies that have happened in this town that have required some life-saving, and it happens. But it truly is, like, a way to connect with my community, but it's also, like, gives me so much meaning and purpose in ways that I didn't have before. Um, There is is another alternate universe that feels very adjacent to this one where I don't do it, and I just feel this aching... Um, emptiness
0: right okay (laughs) do you think though because we you know we speak a lot about this um at the horse's mouth we talk to our clients a lot about turning customers into a community and the work that you've done with magnet theater particularly growing a community of actors and working in theater companies and then even to a certain extent inviting in audiences to connect and become part of a community. Tell us a little bit about your experiences of, of growing a community uh, through your work, through the, you know, the podcasting and the performing and TV stuff that you've done.
2: Ed and I both started from the improv world, you know, that yes and kind of quality is that positivity and just listening and positivity are the best ways to build community of kind of the idea that there are possibilities out there and you just, you know, you just kind of go towards where all the heat is and where people are agreeing. And then if you kind of run up against some problems, you get a little dirty and you try to figure it out, but you just kind of keep inching or sometimes running forwards. And,
0: um, and just to interject uh, uh, for a second, the, the idea of yes and
1: in improv.
2: Oh, sure, sure. So Ed, why don't you take that over? Cause I'm sure you've said it thousands of times in your classes.
1: Uh, yeah, I did start in improv. I discovered it when I was about 16. In high school, I went. I was lucky enough to live in the suburbs of Chicago, and nearby, uh, there was a second city, and on that stage was uh, uh, Amy Sedaris, Steve Carell, Stephen Colbert, Dave Rosowski. Uh, I got to watch them over and over, and I started taking classes there. The first thing I learned is also the second thing I learned, and the thousandth thing I've learned, and the thing I've taught for decades, and it's fundamental agreement. In the phrases yes and. You say yes to what information you were just given and you add onto that information. It's deceptively difficult to do. Our first instinct is always to correct or to say no to something or to create a conflict immediately or to find a way to inject your idea or subvert someone else's idea for, out of fear. It's a discipline. Improv is an incredible discipline that requires a lot of practice to get to a point where you only begin to hear what the other person is going for and you only support it rather than and you have to tune out all the other voices in your head that are trying to correct, fix, subvert or deny. So you think the yes and
0: the whole principle of it is you can model it or you can reframe that in growing an audience community. You can reframe it, say, if you're working with a group of writers or if you're, you know, you're working on a podcast potentially and you're thinking about the audience experience. Do you think that, you know, is it a a good principle for life? Is this what we should be living by? The yes and principle?
2: I would say that in combination with like, yeah, listen and, and take a step back. Like, I think, yeah. I think those are all great kind of in tandem together of, um, yeah, feel like it's almost kind of like the Quaker thought of like, speak when you're called to speak, (laughs) you know, like just relax. You know, there is no fire unless there is. Right. But like, let's all just find our way in this thing together. And Natural leaders can lead particular moments and then another leader will appear and will go with them for a while, but it's like a living thing a community or an organization or a company. I think it's the,
1: the most fundamental collaboration tool is an attitude of acceptance and uh, amplification. When I hear what you say and I build upon that thing, it's not about me or you anymore, it's about the idea. I love people who love exploring ideas. I love the discovery of stuff Um, and then the amplification of those discoveries and then applying techniques to make those things better and tighter and stronger and rewrite the hell out of it. Without the lubrication of yes and between two people, you get stuck in a competition between the people and rather than the ideas. Sure
0: the idea of acceptance, and then what else can we add to it is amazing. And thinking along these lines, do you feel that now with all the knowledge that you've gained and all the experience that you've had in your careers, is there anything that you would kind of say to yourselves, say the 25 years ago version of yourselves that kind of yes and or would there be any other advice that you would give yourselves to say "Mm," you know maybe you you're doing fine or is there anything that you would any
1: advice that you would give your younger selves ironically it would be to say no more often Ah. (laughs) not to ideas but to Involving myself in things where my gut was telling me, like, these people are bad or this thing is not going to be rewarding, but it will really consume a lot of time. I think there's an eagerness when you're young to participate in anything. And I know I always, like, justified doing a lot of stuff by saying it's a learning experience. And I I suppose that was right. And I learned that I shouldn't have participated in it. You know? Yep. Absolutely.
0: Um, (laughs) Melanie? Melanie? How about you? Is there any any gentle words of um, guidance you would provide your younger self with?
2: Mine's a little bit more gendered, uh, meaning like that men don't always know what they're talking about, and I I say this to my twenty year old self self is that I spent a lot of time giving a lot of power away to to a lot of men talking at me, and I I I know I'm sitting in a a Zoom room with three wonderful very caring men who listen, but I, God, I mean, I just spent so much worrying what guys thought of me and if I could get into their club somehow. And uh, it was so hard. It was so hard. The the phrase that I tell my daughter a lot is what other people think of you is none of your business, um, which I really love. And that is kind of like sprouted wings in my back. And uh, I wish someone had told me that many, many, many times.
0: I love that. I think I will nick that off you and use it um, regularly. Now you both are writers and you both perform, you create a lot of dialogue in your work and our organization is all about helping brands to create authentic and meaningful conversations. So rather than message driven marketing, just allowing people to have conversations that are genuine, authentic. So, if we can talk a little bit just about this idea of conversations and the memorable conversations either you've had or that you remember or that have had some kind of effect on you. Melanie, when I've asked you about this, uh, you talked about your uncle.
2: Oh, yeah. Do you, are you queuing that tape?
0: <laughs> I am, yeah. If you want to tell us a wee bit about your uncle.
2: Sure. So I have, um, my mom's side of the family is from Mississippi and really like very, very religious Southern Baptists. um, They go to church almost every day, very, very different politically. Um, And when we go down there, we go down there because there's a general, there's a a meeting for shareholders, general meeting for shareholders once a year in January. Um, And we all own steak in a dog food company that no one's ever heard of, but that's just what we do. We go down there and we eat, but we get driven around by my cousin kind of uncle. He's older than me. So um, he um, has, first of all, just an incredible um, amount of stories that he files away and has an insane memory, but also the cadence and the way he describes things. My jaw is just unhinged. He, um, he owns the graveyard next to the house that my great grandmother grew up in and um, still owns that house and everyone kind of, all my cousins kind of knew that house and that's where we go and visit and stay when we go to Pontotoc, Mississippi. And so he dig, digs a lot of graves. And he just was like, no, that reminds me of a, a time that I was digging a, bra- a baby grave when I heard a sound that sounded like a hound, a hound dog stuck in a possum trap. And my mind is like, trying wait a minute, a baby grave? Oh my God, I never even thought that someone would have to dig a baby grave. And it's someone related to me. But just even kind of understanding the otherness of people's stories. And the assumptions that we make that we all kind of are the same. But when they start telling stories, you understand authenticity on a deeper level and kind of where they're coming from and the stories abilities to kind of bring us together. But also we can see the differences and have appreciation for that difference at the same time. So I just can't get enough of Mississippi.
0: Ed, how about you? Conversations, dialogue?
1: What strikes you? What's memorable to you? Personally, I feel like I'm, I'm so much more interested in the why behind what people are saying than the what of what they're saying, ah. as opposed to Melanie's great example of an amazing storyteller where the what is really so much more illuminating. Sometimes I feel like the motivations behind why people are saying what they're saying or what they're trying to avoid saying becomes, uh, and I approach it a little bit sometimes as an actor when I'm writing, is um, why is this person saying this stuff informs how they say it, uh, and I really am excited by those things. So the dialogue I'm attracted to and get inspired by is the complicated stuff rather than the clever stuff, although a clever person can be very complicated You could be clever to avoid... uh, I spent many years being clever to avoid saying what I truly feel.
0: Right. So is this like someone like Aaron Sorkin, who you... You know, as as a writer of dialogue, is it that kind of...
1: I don't know that Sorkin is the greatest example of that, because I feel like he's... I think... um, you know what? It's it's interesting. I like Sorkin for a different reason. <laughs> I like his work for a different reason because I also, as a person who talks fast sometimes, I feel like fast talking is also a reflection of, of the mind at work. And I think he does an excellent job of getting in, information out in a structured and organized way. Um, but I'm thinking more like, um, gosh, uh, it seems cliche to, to talk about the wire still. But there are examples in there like, uh, you know, the great scene between uh, uh, the two main detectives when they're investigating a crime scene and trying to figure out the trajectory of the bullet holes and the only dialogue they have is uh, exchanging the F word uh, over and over, trying to avoid swearing on your podcast. But the way they say it and how they say it and looking at each other is so much more powerful uh, and gripping than... um, uh, watching two experts demonstrate their expertise, it transcends that need to be educated, and it becomes a human connection. I think that there's so much that goes on between in in the pauses in conversation. I also just think that human beings are the way we talk is rarely reflected in in the media, like in movies there is a way of talking in the movies that's different than in real life, which is exciting when you're writing a movie and you're writing in that genre of this is how people talk, which is you know, why I think podcasts are so incredibly powerful. When you're hearing someone through headphones and they're talking, it's the only other time you hear other voices inside your head that aren't your own voice. There's a real connection there. And I think that the human voice can't hide, uh, they can't hide when they're lying very easily. And most people aren't trained in it. Actors can get good at it. But really, when actors aren't hiding that they're lying, what they've done is stripped away a ton of stuff and gotten to that authentic part of themselves that is truly connected to what they're saying. So when I listen to podcasts, I feel a connection and I feel like I belong in a, in a, a little bit like I'm a friend in a way that I don't get when I'm watching something, you know?
0: Yes, 100%. Absolutely. Can we just talk a little bit about the podcast you guys have worked on? you can tell us a little bit about that?
2: I took a job uh, recently um, being the head writer on a YA murder mystery podcast, uh, the second season of something that was pretty successful called Take Torres.
1: Lethal Lit.
2: Lethal Lit, Tig Taurus, yeah. Everyone was killed in the style of a different author. And that was super, super, super fun. And uh, that's through iHeartRadio and Einhorn Epic Productions. Um, And that was a really fun job, which started during the pandemic. So we all worked from Zoom, uh, on Zoom. We were in in the room together and then then it happened. And that should come out soon.
1: Done a lot of uh, The Truth podcast. We've both appeared on that as actors and we've done writing for it as well that's fiction. That's uh, not conversation. It's, it's uh, meant to be more like a film movies for your ears sort of thing.
2: Yeah. That's the tagline mm-hmm. movies for your ears. Right.
0: It's called the truth podcast. Yeah. Yeah. One of the questions that I love to ask people is if you could have a conversation with anyone living or dead, who would you want to talk to? And I'm going to ask you that question now.
1: Ed. Me? I don't, I don't know if this is squandering it or if it's selfish, but I really would love to sit down and have a conversation with Ian Fleming, uh, author of the Bond novels, but specifically about uh, his role in World War II as a member of the elite intelligence team that cooked up incredible schemes, uh, some of which turned the tide of the war. When I visited the, the underground uh, cabinet uh, war Rooms in London when we were there in 2012 and was in the room that he was in when he when he was strategizing. It just felt like, th- I just felt this, I got. I wish I could just sit and talk to this guy. And I don't know that I would have anything to tell him. I just sort of want to hear him speak and ask him a couple of questions just to see the mind at work. It's not like I'm, I mean, I'm a huge Bond fan, but I haven't read any of the novels. But I did uh, do some reading on Operation Mincemeat and his role in that, and it's just absolutely astonishing. <laughs> and I get really giddy and like, like a twelve-year-old thinking about like how he tricked the Axis and how cockamamie the scheme was, and how British he must have been, like, to get people to to buy into it. Because sometimes when you speak with that accent, you have this immediate authority, at least to us Americans. We Americans that it's convincing and 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 correct and intelligent,
0: yes, apparently there was a trout memo that he created the the I did a bit of research when you mentioned operation mincemeat, and so he was someone's assistant and and his whoever his boss was was a very keen fly fisherman, and said tricking the enemy is like uh, fly fishing somehow. I don't know why. So they called it Operation Trout, and it was this whole... Anyway, Wikipedia, if anyone's listening and excited as I was about Operation Mincemeat, it turns out that, yes, if you Wikipedia that, you will find out about the trout memo as well that Ian Fleming was involved in.
1: And uh, Ben McIntyre wrote a book called Operation Mincemeat that is riveting. It is great reading.
0: Fantastic. Melanie Hoops, you can talk to anyone.
1: You can, but not Ian Fleming. That's mine. <laughs> yeah, that's He's taken. That's taken. I, He's taken. I dare you. Just do it. Just go. <laughs> I think mine's also Ian Fleming. Could I be the
2: waitress, though? <laughs> I could just be the waitress and just come by every once in a while and be like, spill a drink. <laughs> uh-huh. Sorry, Ian Fleming. Um, sorry, Ian Fleming. I think I have two, uh, both female. One... Um, just Joan of Arc. I have a feeling, um, you know, she, she obviously was 14 to, I think she was 14 to to 16, or maybe it was 13 to 16 kind of during her, her time. But I have a feeling she was like a Greta Thunberg of her time and knew what she had to do and saw her place and couldn't understand why other people weren't doing it. You know, it would be a, a conversation where I would just basically kind of confirm that where I'd be like, yes. Yes, go, go, go. You know, but it wouldn't be like a long conversation. She didn't have a lot of experience. She was a farm girl, obviously, but I just would like to meet her. I love I'm kind of fascinated by kids who are 14, 15, 16 and just get missions.
0: I did not know she was that age when she was in her prime or her pomp of being Jeanne d'Arc.
2: I thought she first started hearing voices, I think, at 13 And then I think she was burned at 16. I can quickly look up, but- uh, Wow. Yep, here I am. So, oh, I'm so sorry, burned to death at 19, but I do think her voices started around 13. So I'd like to just be in the room with her. And the other one is Emily Dickinson because she was in quarantine and lockdown continually. And yet she did not go into depression. She had an inner world that was magical down on paper and lived the smallest life externally she lived the smallest life but internally it was universes beyond most people I think those
1: both of those people didn't know how it ended like Emily Dickinson she got some recognition from privately from her colleague or another poet but it was never published right she didn't have her work published she didn't know that she was going to be have such an impact
0: no cool and we're going to wrap up in a minute but i just wonder is there anything that um you guys are doing that you want to plug, that you want to tell us about and if not is there anything that you're really enjoying in the world of audio or otherwise that you would encourage people to f- listen to or
2: watch definitely i've been watching these the series of documentaries called how to with john wilson i think it is and they're all like maybe an hour 45 minutes they're all very simple documentaries i think the first one is how to small talk the second one is how to scaffold doesn't really have interviews with experts he just kind of comes upon his own very pedestrian study of whatever it is and it's so enjoyable to not um feel like you're getting any smarter you know, just you're just watching this guy just kind of do his own research that's on the street and again, very authentic.
0: Nice. Ed, any projects that you want to tell us about or anything that you're enjoying that you would recommend?
2: Project I want to
1: share is a short film that I am in and produced and wrote uh, uh, called Best Friends Forever with one of my best friends, Mark Gessner. And uh, we shot it kind of as an, uh, it's, Kind of a nightmarish exploration of our reaction to the current uh, president. And uh, I won't give anything away, but it's a thriller. And maybe it's a comedy. You'll have to see it yourself. Uh, It's called Best Friends Forever, and that I think I'll give you a link to when I have a link for it. It hasn't really premiered because it went through the festival thing. It went to the Nice International Film Festival in France, and I didn't go because of COVID, but we were nominated for a few awards, and we got to watch those, watch us lose online. Um, things I'm listening to I just finished listening to Blockbuster, which I wanted to not like, but fell in love with. Blockbuster is a, a very well crafted, well produced. Deep dive recreation. Uh, season one is about the relationship between George Lucas and Steven Spielberg while one was doing Star Wars and the other was doing Jaws. Season two was uh, James Cameron, uh, deep dive into his career with actors portraying all the people and reenactments of scenes. Uh, and I wanted it I wanted it to be cheesy and uh, hokey, but it actually was, I was very impressed with how well it was done. And uh, it shows you what's possible, I think, when you really treat podcasts as um, something like uh, audio works of art. Um, it really felt like I was watching a film. They did it. They did a great job. And then the other thing I, I'm obsessed with is World War II in color on Netflix. Ah, okay. <laughs> yes. It's pretty amazing. It, it, how Hitler came really close to winning about seven times but then made one fundamental mistake because of a flaw in his character, hubris and the refusal to listen mm. to other people. It's fantastic and in color.
0: Yes, the color is pretty shocking.
1: And I love uh, Oh Hello, the podcast, which is uh, which <laughs> is John Mulaney and Nick Kroll doing their characters uh, from their Broadway show or from their TV show and it turned into a Broadway show where they do a parody of serial exploring the murder of lady die and i highly recommend it to everyone okay
0: amazing yeah (laughs) well once again guys thank you so much for doing this it's amazing to connect and hear all about you it just remains to say thanks a lot
2: what a pleasure yep
0: thank you
1: thanks for having us mike
0: Sounds Like is a podcast brought to you by the horse's mouth. Sound-loving, brand-building, conversation-starting audio evangelists on a mission to help brands build deeper relationships with the people who matter most. Their teams, fans, and customers. Thanks to our amazing audio producer, Alex Kenning. Tech and everything in between, Jez Gooden, the show's theme music was written and produced by the magnificent Will Flisk. Advisors to The Horses Mouth on all things marketing and content, Elliot Ho and Steve Keeney. And I'm Mike Benson. Thanks for listening. Find us at thehorsesmouth.co or wherever you listen to podcasts. The world's listening. Start the conversation.